Just a heads up, this episode contains graphic descriptions of racist violence. So, uh, why make it this bonfire? Well, we've got some refuse that we need to get rid of, so fires. Fire's the best way, just, uh, you know. Just to be clear, what are we talking about specifically? We're talking about some rebel flags, some Confederate flags, some Trump flags, and then some old Georgia flags that have a different version of the Confederate flag on it. I'm in the backyard of this guy. I'm going to call him Anthony. He's got a huge bonfire going. Anthony's not his real name. We've changed it to protect his identity. You'll understand why a little later. People who like this piece of fabric, people who like this, really fucking like it. It's just, it just means the world to them when they have one up at their house or on their driveway or, or whatever, flying off the back of their pickup truck. Anthony's an anti-fascist activist. And starting in 2018, he started to act on those beliefs. One of the things he does is drive around Georgia and, quote, liberate, that's what he calls it, Confederate flags from cemeteries and people's property. He takes them home and he burns them. Do you see them a lot? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You've got a collection. Yeah, it's, it's really easy to build a collection here in Georgia. Anthony picks one up to show me. It's a really massive Confederate flag. Well, this is the kind that would be like flying off the back of a truck. The, the important part for me is just getting it from the people who are proud to have it. Right. This part is just, it's just the end part of that. Right. It literally just feels like taking the garbage out to me. Do you think the people that fly those Confederate flags like truly understand the gravity of, of what it means? Like there are folks who think this is because I'm Southern, full stop. But that is such an enormous lack of empathy or listening to any other human beings. Right. So like I don't really give them a pass either. Because it's, it's, you just haven't thought about this at all. But then I think just from watching the, the lots of race, racists that I watch, um, a lot of them like have that language loaded up. The heritage, not hate. The, well, we come from Southern stock, all, all this bullshit. But it, it really, like at the heart, you know, they, they have a twinkle in their eye and they have a little elbow bump and they, they know they all know it's like well it's because we're white and we're special so kkk confederacy and then the base you know you're in georgia these are things that have happened here do you consider them kind of in the same in the same group in the um, same web kkk i think is really just like old people I know they still exist in this area, but it's not, they don't seem to be actively trying to do anything. The base, people like this, this neo-Nazi stuff is, is like organizing and being accelerationists and, and trying to get things stirring to where more violence can happen. Um, then do you see it as like the next generation of clan? Yeah, yeah. Right. I think, I think in the eyes of anybody who wants to do racism and violence right now, it is not, they're not going to turn to the KKK. They're going to turn toward the base, League of the South, Adam Offen, whatever new name they come up with. So far in this series, we've been breaking down the history of the far-right extremist movement in this country. 
the origins of its ideology, how it's grown, and how failures by the federal government fundamentally change the way authorities go after right-wing extremism. But what I don't want to do is paint these guys as these unstoppable boogeymen. There are ways that government agencies and even everyday people have been fighting back. That's actually why I went to Georgia to meet Anthony. From Vice News and Gimlet, I'm Ben Maku, and this is American Terror. Episode 5, The Crackdown. Now this right here is the Confederate cemetery. Yeah. What if they still got the flag up? So last time I was here, it was, it was um, covered in little Confederate flags everywhere. I've been following the base for a few years when I zeroed in on this cell in Georgia. I'd seen these neo-Nazi terror cells spark up all over the country, in Michigan, in New York, in Maryland. But the one in Georgia caught my eye because they were so active in the chats, sharing pictures and planning violence, and because eventually they got caught. So I went down to check it out. We're in Rome, Georgia right now. I've been to Rome a few times. It's a small town at the foothills of the Appalachians. It's really pretty though, right? No, it's beautiful. It's like rolling hills and like pine trees. Yeah, farms, like farmland. The clan was created not too far from here in Tennessee, and they still have a presence in the area. There was a clan rally here just a few years back. This is the town or city that's closest to where Luke Lane lives or lived. He now lives in a, you know, an institution for uh, inmates. Luke Lane. Lane was a member of the neo-Nazi terror group, The Base, and the self-proclaimed leader of the Georgia Cell. Online, Lane claimed to have transitioned from Republican to Libertarian to National Socialist, AKA a Nazi. And eventually, he found groups of fellow Nazis online. Sometime in 2018 or 2019, Lane got in touch with Ronaldo Nazaro, the founder of The Base. He quickly joined up and started organizing a local cell. I'd seen Lane in the base's private chats and on Twitter. He went by the moniker TMB, or The Militant Buddhist, likely an allusion to the Nazi SS's obsession with Indian mysticism and Buddhism. At the time, Lane was 21. Looking back through the chat logs, I saw that Lane was really active. He posted constantly, filling the base's chats with racist videos and memes. He also invited members of the base to meet on his dad's land, close to Rome, about 100 acres where they could drink and train with guns. They used the farm to make propaganda videos, which Lane then posted on Twitter to recruit new members. In one of the videos, a group of men shoot handguns at a target with the star David Bullseye. And then Lane and some other members start planning to actually commit murder, to kill that Antifa activist we're calling Anthony. Yeah, yeah, no, was it, this is 74. 74. Somebody said on the porch. Is that your, is that your dude? No? I think. Yeah? Yes, I believe so. Is it it's Yeah, he's got a porch. I'm driving down Anthony's street. I get the feeling that he sits in this spot a lot, watching his driving by. I was like, oh, 
Hey, I'm Ashley. Hey. And it's understandable why, considering what happened to him and his family two years ago. So um, one morning, January 2020, I was, I was still recovering from the really big building season for Christmas presents. Anthony's an artist. He works with wood. Um, lots of orders. And uh, it was pretty early in the morning, maybe like 8.45, three men rang my doorbell. And... What did they look like? Uh, for the most part, what you expect an FBI agent to look like. They looked, yeah, they looked like American dad. So uh, I opened the door and immediately I uh, showed his badge. They said this is what's called a victim notification. Uh, we just arrested three men who plotted to murder you and your spouse and anybody else who was in your house. Um, so I had a lot of emotions just in that uh, releasing of words. I was so grateful, but also like in shock. I, I thought that I was pretty safe. They told me there's an organization, it's close to you, just one city away. And the members of it are so violent that they planned on murdering you and anybody else in your house uh, based, based on almost nothing. Um, just your affiliation with? Pretty much just that I have different political views than them. And that had me even more shocked because I had never heard of the base. I asked Anthony if he knew Lane. Before this all happened, had you ever heard of the name Luke Lane before? And then I ask about two other members of the base. Uh, Jacob Catterley? No. Michael Hilterbrand? No. Had you ever heard of a group called The Base? No. Anthony's from here. Uh, I grew up in this area. Uh, I went to high school in this town. He went to college, and then, about 10 years ago, he moved back home and became a youth pastor. I believed in those principles that you should you should protect marginalized people, that you should um, stand up for people who don't have a voice, uh, help lift them up. But, Anthony says, he started to notice that people around him at church didn't exactly share his politics. It was those things that you hear people say that's like, I'm not racist, but, and then they say something racist, just seeing it for 10 years of these people who are acting the, the most holy, just being the sh- shittiest bags. Uh, and uh, I, I knew <laughs> you, you can't just let them claim that they're just being sweet and, and innocent and just don't know, don't know how to function these days and don't know how to say the right thing. I'm just from a different time. Fuck you, you're racist. So Anthony left the church, got into carpentry, joined some leftist groups and boom started identifying with not just anti-fascist beliefs, but anti-fascist activism. Antifa is not an organization. Antifa is not a, a club or some, a, a group that has meetings. It's, it's just a mindset of being anti-fascist. And the, the, the anarchist part of that is like, if you see a need, you fill it if you can. His fundamental belief is that racists and far-right extremist groups need to be confronted actively sometimes aggressively. And so that's what he does. He drives around removing Confederate flags in his community and burns them. He knows how to take pictures of license plates and gatherings in the woods. And so he'll pick a racist group as a pet project, 
collect as much info as he can about them and pass it on to people who out them. He knows how and where to put up stickers and signs to make these groups as uncomfortable as possible. And so in 2018, a year after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Anthony decided to confront some of these groups in person. He went to a memorial for Heather Heyer. Heyer had protested the far-right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. She'd been run over and killed by a neo-Nazi. And Anthony wanted to show that she'd not been forgotten. There were so many journalists, uh, photographers, and so they got all of our faces. And uh, a couple months later, this guy, this real nutsack, just complete, total garbage person, uh, racist to the bone. He got obsessed with our group and doxed everybody one by one. And this guy, he doxes Anthony and a bunch of other activists, posts their pictures and personal info all over the internet on far-right forums. The sin that I was doxed for was just being in Charlottesville. At first, Anthony says, people were scared. Some even left anti-fascist work altogether. But eventually, he says, things calmed down and he went on with his life. Until January 2020, when he gets that knock on his door early one morning. Three men ring my doorbell and I open the door and immediately unfold the wallet. This is what's called a victim notification. Uh, We just arrested three men who plotted to murder you and your spouse and anybody else who was in your house. The basis plans unravel after the break. Lane and members of the base's Georgia cell had been training throughout 2019. They talked about it in their online chats. They decided to celebrate the group's progress with a pseudo-pagan ritual. Shoot a bunch of guns, steal a ram from a neighbor's farm, drop acid, cut off the ram's head, drink its blood, and take pictures. You know, the usual. I've actually seen those pictures. Eleven guys stand in two rows. The front row is kneeling like some fucked up sports team. One of the members, I can't tell who, is holding up the ram's head like a trophy. Nazaro, the founder of the base, loved this. In the chats, Nazaro shares the photos with other members and writes, quote, This is the foundation we need for long-term success. Our reputation is continuing to grow steadily, and with the quality we have on board, I'm confident it'll grow further. And they don't stop there. Anthony believes they'd seen those lists online of all the Doc's Antifa members. And they figured out that he lived pretty close by. The group spends months carefully planning the murder of Anthony and his wife. They're tactical. They stake out his house. They make detailed plans of how they'll keep the crime scene free of evidence. They say they're gonna burn the house down to dispose of the bodies. But these three members of the base, Luke Lane, Jacob Catterley, and Michael Heltebrand, do get caught. In fact, they're being watched the whole time. The FBI had planted an undercover agent in the Georgia cell in 2019. The agent had been interviewed by Lane and another base member and took on the persona of a longtime racist biker. Then he met Lane in person. So we're talking to definitely, uh, what was the word again? Direct action. These are the FBI's recordings. 
The audio is a little shitty, but the undercover agent asks Lane, quote, we are talking about planning a murder, right? Direct action. Probably I'd rather better targets than just some Antifa people, but if they're here, so be it. Lane says he'd prefer better, quote, targets than some random Antifa activists. Yeah, considering what we believe, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, just, it's not a bad target, I don't think. Say it wouldn't hesitate in a second to ruin a bunch of people's lives. Oh, no, not at all. And it's a twofer as well, a husband and a wife. They're both doing it. Oh, so it's one one stop shopping. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Lane and the agent joke that the murder is also convenient because it's a two for one Anthony and his wife. Their plan is to enter the home through the front door with assault weapons and kill anyone who is inside at the time. But you had me scouted the place out. You know, if there's cameras up, I mean, is it a neighborhood, neighborhood? Is it near shops? Um, they discuss what to do if there are children. And one member responds that he's, quote, got no problem killing a commie kid. In January 2020, before Lane and the other members can go through with this plan, they're arrested. Three men are under arrest, accused of being part of an extremist group plotting to murder a couple in Bartow County. For the first time, we are taking you inside what federal investigators call a terrorist training camp in North Georgia. Members of a violent neo-Nazi group allegedly plan to start a new civil war. Afterwards, the base's chats light up. Members start freaking out. All right, so main thing, the main reason for the call is just to pick up the pieces here of everybody else that's, um, that's in the region, uh, establish what the fuck uh, we do going forward here, uh, what mistakes got made, what stuff, uh, you know, got our comrades, uh, you know, thrown in cages. Base members around the country are worried that they're also going to get a visit from the feds. So they start cleaning house, deleting their chat groups, and making new ones. Nazaro writes simply, fuck. They also start calling each other. This is more tape from the infiltrator, the one that I sat in the car with and listened into the base's recruitment call. If you go on Twitter right now, you'll see uh, that every single major publication that you can name, right, is, is running an article about uh, about the, the arrests that have happened. Like, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of heat. And then they get an idea. Why don't they use the heat from the government and all the media attention for some publicity. If you want to project strength, why not post or while this is all going on? Yeah, that's true. We could do that. Of course they want to use all this media attention to their advantage. This is something we've talked about before, and it's something I think about a lot when I write about these groups, make a podcast about them. It's always a question. When we as journalists report on these groups, if and how are they going to take advantage of that moment for recruitment or radicalization? And for me, the answer is that the public needs to know, especially when these groups pose an immediate threat. We cover ISIS, we cover Al-Qaeda, and it's my job to cover these guys. If I don't, all that's out there is their propaganda. Especially after everything that went down, if we put out some propaganda of us actually doing some survivalism and prepping shit, uh, it'll show that we're still here and that, you know, we're, we're actually doing what we say we are. We want to protect strength. A few days later, 
Nazaro joins a call. He repeats what he said before, that they're all safe. Because again, remember, their strategy is to at least appear to be operating as small, disparate cells without an alleged leader. This is the reality of what we're getting into. There's going to be people trying to infiltrate, and it's going to happen sometimes, okay? Nazaro blamed Lane and other members in Georgia for being sloppy. He tries to assure the other members of the base that they're safe, even if they're being infiltrated. And with that in mind, we need to proceed with that assumption in mind, which means do not fed posts online or in real life, okay? Um, don't say shit to people you know, you don't, that you shouldn't be saying. At this point, eight members have been arrested in the span of four months. But all this press, Nazaro says, it's also brought them new recruits. I mean, FBI helped us create propaganda that helped us to recruit. Think about that. I mean, he, he actually, like, invested money, bought ammunition for those meetups. Yeah, he even got them a couple porta potties <laughs> So we had the feds actually funding our training. I mean, in part. Okay, we got tons of recognition and recruits directly from FBI uh, involvement in the base. But now there's a spotlight on them from the government, from journalists like me. And it's only a matter of time before that starts to have an effect. Okay. All right. Uh, Ashley Cleek and Ben McCook uh, with uh, Vice News. Correct. Okay. Yes, thank you. All right. So even though the FBI had infiltrated the base cell in Georgia, the federal government sent the evidence and charges to a state court. All three pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and gang charges. And after almost two years of delays because of COVID, in the fall of 2021, I logged into the online hearing to learn how the judge would sentence two members of the base, Jacob Catterley and Luke Lane. So at the highest levels of government, we have findings that Antifa is committing crimes, is, a, is, a, is seeking to change our country through violent means. Their lawyers try to equate the base with Antifa to make this out to be something of an ideological gang war. For the record, that's completely and utterly untrue. And I see it, unfortunately, all over our country, people going into these tribes, into these camps, um, of extremism, whether it's Antifa and the base or whether it's other groups that I'm not going to, I'm afraid I'll get political if I start talking about. The judge doesn't seem to buy it. And then Luke Lane takes the stand. Lane's in a bright orange jumpsuit. He's covered in neo-Nazi tattoos. The base logo, swastikas, he got them all on the inside. The DA points out that while in prison, Lane had graffitied the walls of his cell with fascist pictures and messages and he was caught with a shank. Firstly, I'd like to start off by apologizing to the victims for any emotional distress I may have caused them. Lane starts out apologizing, but then immediately tries to use this moment as a sort of platform. He breaks into this political rant about how he and his fellow Nazis are supposedly being persecuted. We also experience attacks by political activists such as Antifa via physical violence at speaking venues and rallies, illegal cyber attacks, and the most commonly employed tactic of harassing people's employers or university administrations until they were fired or expelled. Despite let me, let me ask you. Then the judge jumps in. Who are we? Uh, people with 
any sort of similar uh, oriented political beliefs. And what were those uh, political beliefs? Uh, national socialism and anybody that's aligned with anything similar. Fascism. How, how, how did you come to hold these political beliefs? Just reading the internet? Uh, mostly through interacting with other people and having philosophical conversations with them online. And Quite frankly, Mr. Lane, I was shocked by your statement. I'm not sure what exactly you intended. Were you trying to make a case that you're a political martyr? No, sir. Talk about your beliefs as a national socialist and as a, a fascist. We fought, fought World War II because of those political beliefs. Now, you can have any beliefs you want. That's not against the law. But when you act on them and plot and plan violence based on them and because of them, that causes the court concern. And you continued after your incarceration with these violent tendencies and these based on these beliefs while even while you're incarcerated. You've stamped them on your body. The judge ultimately sentences Lane to 13 years in prison and his co-conspirator, Catterley, to six. A third member of the cell, Michael Helterbrand, was sentenced to 20 years. During his time in jail awaiting trial, Helterbrand joined a violent all-white gang and pled guilty to attacking, burning, and sexually assaulting another inmate. And this, it made me think about the actual effects, the strategy the government is using the weight infiltrated the Georgia cell of the base. That tactic worked. They prevented two murders. But going after members individually and then turning them over to the state courts means that the government is treating these cases like a series of one-off crimes, instead of how they would target an international terrorist group, like ISIS. Plus, someone like Nazaro, who's behind the scenes and basically acting as their leader, he remains completely free. Remember, the FBI abandoned these attempts at movement-wide prosecutions in the 80s after the failed sedition trial of the movement's leaders in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I reached out to the local FBI in Georgia to speak about this case. I wanted to learn about their strategy and how they target these groups, but they declined to be interviewed. But we were able to talk with the FBI up in Michigan, where almost a year later, another cell of the base was brought down. Do you want to say what you do with the FBI? So I'm a special agent with the FBI. Uh, during the investigation of Justin Watkins, I was assigned to the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, and I primarily focused on white, racially motivated, violent extremist groups. Justin Watkins was the self-proclaimed leader of the base's Michigan cell. Members had attempted to form a compound where they filmed propaganda videos with military-style weapons. They planned multiple attacks on journalists and activists. And then they got caught. This FBI agent was part of that operation. He's asked that we protect his identity because of the sensitive nature of his work. So I'm going to call him by a pseudonym, John, and we've agreed to alter his voice. When was the first time that you heard about the base? The first time I heard about the base was the week of Thanksgiving in 
2019, and I heard that Mr. Watkins was hosting other members of the base here in Michigan for what he described to be a hate camp. And how many guys were there? There was approximately six attendees, including Mr. Watkins, vast assortment of firearms, and Mr. Watkins led that training and used it to produce propaganda and recruitment material for the base. I knew about this hate camp. It's where they made propaganda videos, just like the Georgia cell had done. The video is similar to all the others. Loud Nazi music, guys in balaclavas and tactical gear running military drills and firing lots of weapons. At the end, a guy with a sniper rifle appears pointing off into the distance. Then they flash a series of photos of their enemies, including a picture of my reporting partner, Matt Glamourer, and me. So they were doing paramilitary training, essentially. That is correct. The leader, Watkins, was 26 and had briefly served in the army. What was it like investigating Justin Watkins? Mr. Watkins, um, for me personally, he was unprecedented in his desire to carry out an act of violence. When Mr. Watkins took over the group, he really started to gear it towards violence. The provocative nature of the social media videos, the postings, the flyers increased. There was no longer the full mask being worn. There was less concern about being doxxed. This was more of a not if, but when, is when an attack would happen is what the gear this group started to, to become. For close to a year, John says, the FBI waited. They wanted to make sure that they had what they needed to charge the members of the Michigan cell with crimes that could result in real prison time without a specific threat made, we had to be cognizant of Mr. Watkins and his associates' First Amendment rights to protest. We had concern nearly every day that Mr. Watkins was willing to engage in an act of violence, but we had no clear indication of when it would occur or that he had stated it would occur at a certain time. Tonight, two local men arrested and facing state charges accused of belonging to a white supremacist group and making threats against a family. The arrests came after Watkins and another base member posted threatening images online of what they believed to be the home of an Antifa podcaster. 25-year-old Justin Watkins and 35-year-old Alfred Gorman attempted to target the home of a podcaster who was critical of neo-Nazis. They went to this guy's house dressed in military gear, flak jackets, and their trademark skull masks. They stood on his porch and pointed to his address, then took a picture. They posted that picture online. But they allegedly terrorized a different family after getting the address wrong. They'd gone to the wrong house. In chats, members of the base reacted about how stupid this was. And yeah, it's a dumb mistake, but the act itself is deeply threatening. It also made me think of Anthony in Georgia and other attacks the group had planned. So we are just driving up with a Michigan State trooper to the compound where the base Michigan cell used to be occupying. Watkins had attempted to build a compound for the base. He and a handful of members had moved into a farmhouse deep in rural Michigan. And they did a lot of paramilitary training and 
propaganda videos where they threaten people, uh, me being part of that group of people who were threatened. So it's a, definitely a strange thing driving up to it. We're not actually sure if, uh, if ex-members or current members are occupying the house right now. We drive out into farmland, flat, green, and yellow cornfields. We park at the entrance to a dirt driveway. And we can see the farmhouse. It's falling apart. The trooper says there's not much plumbing, and the base members would literally bury their shit outside. He tells us to wait in the car. You guys just stay back here in the car. I'll kind of look around, knock on the door, see if anybody's there, and then say, okay, clearly nobody's around. Come back out, and then we can decide what we'll do from there. Yeah, I don't want to take you guys up to the house until I know we're either welcomed or it's empty. Yeah. One of those two. So He does a sweep of the buildings. All right, All right are we good? Yep. There's bullet casings everywhere, but no people. And I remember when we were inside, like the upper bedrooms, like, so there was a bedroom in the downstairs in this bottom corner, and then upstairs was just all bedrooms. And every one of these windows, every one of these doors all had a gun that was propped up against it. Wow. Yep. And they just... How many guns did you find when you were there? I think we documented right around a dozen. Damn. Yep. All legally owned at the time. Yeah. Registered to different family members and themselves, and we didn't find any illegal type of firearms, like fully automatics or anything. Right. But there was AR-style... Mm-hmm. Handguns, mm-hmm. shotguns, some older, older like antique style guns. So. Now, when the raid actually happened, you were there that morning. That is correct. The walk-ins and the rest of the guys let police into the house without a fight. John, the FBI agent, says they found an arsenal. Within the home, there were firearms and loaded uh, magazines, uh, just dispersed throughout the residence. There was a shell loaded shotgun in the bathroom. The living room had uh, firearms and loaded magazines. In Mr. Watkins' room itself, um, on the bed which he was sleeping, there was a loaded Glock handgun. There was so much ammunition dispersed throughout the residence that it was in the washing machine, in the dryer, in vehicles. Um, They definitely had the capability to engage law enforcement. Watkins was sentenced to 56 months to 20 years in prison. I think that someone like Mr. Watkins will unfortunately always be a threat. Prison is actually kind of the perfect place to radicalize people. You got a bunch of men who already have similar beliefs, living in close quarters, with a lot of time on their hands, and not a whole lot else to do. Case in point, the Aryan Brotherhood a neo-Nazi extremist group with an estimated 20,000 members, and also the largest and deadliest prison gang in the United States. So if and when Watkins does get out of prison, he'll most likely be just as radical as when he entered, and in no way rehabilitated. Then there's the other thing that struck me, Watkins' background, his time in the military. Now, we know because of the, the indictment against Mr. Watkins that he actually had some military training and was in the U.S. Army for t- two months, I believe? That's correct. What did he learn there? So, Mr. Watkins touted his, even though short-term experience, he touted that very highly as qualifying him to teach others about those tactics. But the most important part, the limited training he had, was the confidence it inspired in him. He really felt that having been a member of the military really made him proficient to conduct an act of violence. And I feel that his military training gave him the bravado that should he choose to engage in 
law enforcement that he would be able to do so. And neo-Nazis being former military, it's a problem that the Pentagon has been ignoring for decades. That's next time on American Terror. American Terror is a Spotify original podcast from Vice Audio and Gimlet Media. It's reported by me, Ben Maku, as well as Mac Lamara, Ashley Cleek, Sam Egan, Sophie Kazis, and Zachary Kamel. It's produced by Sam Egan and Sophie Kazis, and executive produced by Ashley Cleek, and by Colin Campbell and Nicole Beamsterboer from Gimlet. Sound design and original music composition by Pran Bandy. Editing by Kate Osborne from Vice Audio and Brendan Klinkenberg from Gimlet. Janet Lee is the Senior Production Manager at Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Maximo Anderson and Nicole Pasulka. Joshua Fisher-Birch was our expert consultant. Special thanks to Katie Sheward, Miguel Fernandez-Flores, Anna Sebeskin, Mac Lamara, Tim Marchman, Josh Visser, Kisa White, and The Infiltrator for risking his life to bring this story to the public. I'm Ben Maku.